Welcome to season three of And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. Today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. From weekend warriors to Grammy winners, Banzoogle powers the website for tens of thousands of musicians around the world. So whether you're just starting out or looking for an affordable solution to build a new website and manage your direct-to-fan sales, you can use Banzoogle's simple tools to design a website and store that both you and your fans will love. Go to Banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days. And be sure to use the promo code ATWI. That's ATWI to get 15% off the first year of your subscription. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. This week's writer has written some of those songs where you just say the title and you know it. Not like hits, but smashes. And in between writing those smashes, she's advocating for songwriters' rights. But don't forget that she started as an artist and knows the licensing game as well as anyone we've had on this show. From Detroit, Michigan... This writer can work with everyone because everyone wants to work with her. And the writer is one of my closest friends in the music business, Maureen Mozella McDonald. Hello, Ross. Hi. Hello, Joe. So we were talking about how we should do the whole interview yeah. like this because we're both Midwesterners. And you're Midwest too, right? And oh, Joe- yeah. So Joe's Wisconsin. Or is he your, oh, is he? Yeah, all- I'm from Chicago. You're from Chicago yeah. and I'm from... I'm from Michigan. So here what's, we go, what's, guys. What's your, <laughs> what's your grocery store? Oh, Kroger. Yeah, Kroger and Farmer Jack for a while, but they went out of business. <laughs> what did you guys have? <laughs> Julasco. Oh, yeah, and Dominic's. And Chicago. Joe had, had Piggly Wiggly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like, can't believe that's the name. Like, it's that's a, a horrible hard, name that's for a, a grocery yeah. store. It's like, I don't want to buy my pork there. Is, there. is that weird? It's not where I would... Yeah, it feels like that's where you don't buy pork. Where you don't buy your pork. I know. No offense. I mean, look, by the way, for all the people who shop at Piggly Wiggly and who enjoy... Pork products. Pork products. Don't let us stop you. Yes. Um, 
This is fantastic. I feel like, and that was the show. And here we go. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and time's up. <laughs> um, it's funny when we talk about grocery stores because I was thinking about how you and I are friends with a lot of Swedish writers. Yes. And how they're all super reserved. And you and I just happen to walk into these these sessions and we're just chatty and talking <laughs> and like we're we just go hug everybody and and the, at first I was I thought they all hated me but they're just not they just don't do this they no. just don't they don't stand in line in a grocery store and ask what you're cooking for dinner that's actually a, <laughs> I've had a whole conversation about that because yeah. in Sweden because my boyfriend is Swedish and Ross is very one of his closest co-writers and friends is Swedish and they and my boyfriend and his co-writer happen to be like almost best friends. So yeah, you can call him up at him. Yeah. So what well, you're you're <laughs> Peter Carlson and Johan Carlson, not related. Not related. But um, and they all anyway. work in the same crew of people. But yeah. yeah, if you go to Sweden, you have to turn your barcodes codes. <laughs> you have to turn your barcodes to face the the cashier because it's rude if you don't turn all your barcodes toward her, and then you wait in line quietly. And I'm from Michigan and you're from Chicago, you know, from Illinois. And it's like, oh, have you ever tried those Nilla wafers? You know, yeah. you like ask people questions in line. That's like, do you like that product? Is it good? The weather's great. It's like way different. But I think they're all, they all secretly love us. It's like they, there's a little vicarious yeah. living going on through the wild. Well, I found know. out once, once I realized that, you know, they're all very nice. They just don't feel like it has to be all about them. And where I grew up, it was like, watch me with jazz hands walk down the street. <laughs> right. you know? it's, right. like, it's like, here I am. We're very, right? very American, <laughs> as they say. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, so you're born in Michigan. Yes. Are you born in Michigan? Uh, yeah, I was born um, just like a couple miles outside the city. Okay. And grew up just about a mile outside Detroit. Did you come out of the womb singing? Yeah, pretty much. Really? Yeah, all, yeah. We have videos of me from like the time. I think my mom said I started talking at like five months. I don't know if that's early. I think it's early? early. Yeah, okay. I think that's early. So I've all, clearly I like to talk, but like you know, it's always been. I like communication. So when I did like you were you? Um, do you remember the first songs you would sing when you were growing up? Yeah, like um, a lot of country. Weirdly, like my parent, my dad. My dad was a farmer. He grew up in up in northern Michigan in the Thumb. And he grew up on a farm. So we would go back to the farm on the weekends when I was a kid and um, listen to like Willie Nelson and Crystal Gale and like all this. Is that like, how they made a living? My dad's parents, yeah, my dad's parents were um, farmers and um, his grandparents were farmers. They're all Irish and Polish immigrants. And um, my dad was left the farm at 17 and went to University of Detroit and got a law degree. So he stayed oh, in the wow. city. Yeah. Yeah. So did they play music? No. Uh-uh. The only person, the only really family member I have that played music was on my mom's side. Well, my mom and all her sisters sang in choral in high school and all that. But my mom's dad was from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And in the 1930s, um, he sang on the radio as a boy. Like for like on Sundays, he sang church songs for like a quarter or That's something. That's crazy. Did you meet them? Did yeah, you know yeah. Them? My Were dad's, they? my dad, my mom's dad kind of, we grew up just down the street from them. So he taught, he's, he taught me how to sing when I was little. That's crazy. So did you did you you play piano too though, right? Uh, I took piano lessons as a kid, and I can kind of hack on the piano, but my More main instrument guitar. was guitar. Yeah. yeah. Who taught you that? Uh, when I was like eleven or twelve, I decided I wanted to learn how to play, and I got a guitar and self taught, and then I took lessons for like two years. What kind of music were you teaching yourself? Um, well, like Nirvana covers and stuff. Sick. <laughs> so like Nirvana and I was really into grunge when I was like in middle school. And then I got into like Lilith Fair stuff. 
Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, so like I would play like Lisa Loeb or like Sarah McLaughlin or one of, you know, just anything. Counting Crow- I really loved Counting Crows and like all those Indigo bands. Indigo Girls? Uh, no Indigo Girls. It wasn't my go-to. I had to but- learn those songs because my sister and her best friend wanted, loved, it, loved yeah. it. So I had to learn how to play them so they could sing it. Right. And that was like right when I started learning how to play guitar. And I was like, yeah. I don't make me learn this. But I was like, <laughs> my sister kinda, would like to yeah. sing and I just liked writing, you know? Yeah, isn't that funny that you just, I think when you're young and you grow up in a town where maybe you're just slightly different or I was like really chubby and boys didn't like me and I didn't, I, I just wanted to have a, a something that was my own, I guess. That's what when you, do you when look you're back young. at that is, that, is that how it was or do you feel like that was, like, was your image of yourself at that time, how would you view like, yourself now? Was, that, um, was it internal or was that actually? No, I was actually like, uh, I was I was always like a funny, loud, chubby girl. But I I think I, I wanted, I wanted, I had things to say and I felt like it was hard to express them maybe when you have this persona you've created in middle school, you know? So I thought writing songs about it would be a good way to get my feelings out. Did somebody say, hey, you should write songs about it? No, I just, I started writing poems when I was little. And uh-huh. so I had these poems that I would sing melodies to, but I never played an instrument. So then... So do you, maybe I do you know what your first song was? Oh yeah, it's horrible. What is it? Um... Well, my best friend and I in the fourth grade had this horrible song called Love Triangle, which we didn't even know what that meant. We just like made it. But that's actually like a pretty sophisticated (laughs) title. I mean, who watched, I think we watched soap operas or something and we realized that like a love triangle, like, so we made up this song. I'm, I got a love triangle, baby. I'm going for you, you and you. I don't know what to do. I don't know. Except the problem is you, you and you would actually make a love parallel. It's a little love parallel. It's a love parallel. Yeah, it's a, 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 right, it's right. a love square. Right, right. So we didn't get our trapezoid. math right. It's a trapezoid. Uh, so we a didn't... love trapezoid. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't have our math right, but that was our first song when we were 10. But that's like a real song. Yeah, I yeah. mean, all things considered, there are probably some bands that you could... you could Pitch that one to. Yeah, right? or at least the concept. <laughs> so, yeah, that was my first one. And then... Did you perform it in front of people? No, not that one. Yeah. Also, I also wrote a poem that I had no, like, I didn't know, I knew words rhyme, but I didn't know how deep their meaning could be. And I remember reading my mom a poem and I give her a lot of credit. I was like nine and I was like, oh, give me a kiss, yet not bitter lust. One I can feel, one I can thrust. And she was like, she was like, I think you meant trust. Like my mother was so sweet. She wasn't like, whoa, what are do you, you remember? This from do you there? remember? Yes, I remember. And she was like, Oh, I think you meant one you can trust. And she I'm like, oh, okay. And I quickly erased it and wrote trust. And then I put it away. Like my like how sweet is that? The love she, triangle and the lyrics is like <laughs> there's definitely some people you could sing that to that would get you in a lot of trouble. It would get, I'm like nine years old writing these like hot like Which you, know. so you you said you wrote it with a friend, so you weren't you were writing, you had friends come over and you guys were yeah. writing? Yeah, we had a, one of those like... So you co-wrote from from like literally yeah. from elementary school. Yeah, she's still one of my best friends. We met when we were like seven. But um, that was just for fun. Like we made up a fake band and she had those like electric, um, like two, 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 two drums, like yeah. the plastic ones sure. that you like. So we'd play in her basement and then... What was the name of your band? Uh, that band was just, well, we had a club called the Private Eyes, oh, sick. but that was part of our, our club. <clears throat> and then my first band in high school was called Suburban Mercury. Okay. It was because all the Detroit was the car industry. So we just picked two cars. 
Right. And fit them together. And That's I was in a band fun. with like a bunch of boys. But they kicked me out. Why? Because um, I wanted to play like kind of more Lilith Fair rock, like kind of going into alternative. And they wanted to do like Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, those are different. So it just didn't work. So they kicked me out. Did you then start your own thing? Uh, yeah, coffee shops around Detroit, like the Detroit area when I was 15. So how long were you... First of all, how did people... Did you record this music? I mean, when you're in 15, are you then... Not really. We didn't have any money, and we didn't have the access. So how are they booking you and stuff like that? I, uh, the first gig I ever had, I went to a coffee shop, and I there was an open mic, and I played, and the owner asked if I wanted to play on Friday nights. So I just learned covers, and I just went back and with a tip jar, put my tip jar out and played covers for two hours. Did you make any money? Yeah, but I think because my grandma put like 20 bucks in there. I think right. she like over so you made you made like I made 24, like 24 bucks, bucks and, and like, then like the rest was family just right. paying, paying me to have a hobby. Yeah. But when so. did you realize it might not be a hobby? Um at that point. Last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Songwriter right. jokes. Right. <laughs> um right. Uh yeah, I I knew I wanted to move to California when I was 18. I was like I think I'm going to try to go get a record deal. Did you have um did you go to school? No. So you were you graduated? Did you graduate high school? Yeah, I went to an all girls Catholic high school, mm-hmm. and I was like, yeah, I don't know that this is, like, I don't know that college is the route. I think I sh- probably should. I mean, it's for some people, it's the way to go. But yeah. I just knew I wanted to get a record deal. That's all I knew I wanted to do was make music. And I think my parents were a little, you know, don't you think maybe you should. <sighs> get a degree at least and I said the trade-off was I'd move to LA and then go to community college so I went to Valley College and I went to Glendale Community and I took classes were you already Moselle at the time no when I got my first record deal with Maverick they said do you have like a nickname that you go by because Maureen McDonald is you know it's not really your style I mean I had like you know not yeah, hoop earrings and a like track a, it's jacket. a cool name like when you have alliteration like that it's a good like it's a really good little affair name it's for a great sure. little affair <laughs> name but I was in like a track jacket I was doing like acoustic like like urban acoustic pop at a time when it was sort of like pre Nelly Furtado right so like it was very so I had these like giant gold knocker earrings and a track jacket on and so. yeah and then they were like do you have a nickname I said well my grandpa the one that taught me how to sing um he used to call me Mozella because Momo is my nickname and Mosey's and Mosers and Mosey Posey and he would call me Mozella because he actually had a cousin whose real name was Mozella. Oh, wow. That was her name from Tennessee. So he just called me Mozella. I thought it was because you were a badass. And that <laughs> I there just was made some, up like, name. There, no, no, I thought that there was like some sort of like, like I could see somebody being like, you know, like like a a Godzilla of oh, like yeah. like that was like like some sick ass rap name where it's like, yo, man, I'm like Maureen the Godzilla, I'm like <laughs> Mozella. Like, I like, wasn't that, yeah. I always thought that there was some sort of thing. That's really cute that your grandpa used to call you that, mm-hmm, and then the whole family would call me Mozella. Yeah. So wait, how soon after moving to or going to school in Glendale are you getting a record deal? Uh, within two years. Oh wow! So pretty short. So you weren't really struggling as far as well. Like there, were, there was like that that two year span between. So I moved here at eighteen. I got I was a waitress and a cake decorator. So I decorated cakes in the valley. What? Yeah, I decorated like wedding cakes and cupcakes and stuff. So that's what I did. And I was a waitress. And I didn't have a car the first year I was here. I had no. Th- I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any money. I took the bus. And no car yeah, in LA. You're taking a bus. I took the bus down Ventura Boulevard every day, like at eighteen years old, to decorate cakes. 
So I was desperate to get out of that and try to make more money so I could buy a car. So I begged the the restaurant manager to let me waitress at night while I decorated in the day so I could buy my first Honda. And then I got a Honda. And then I hated I hated the job so much. But I will say that the I learned Spanish, so I speak I'm fluent in Spanish now from working in the bakery. So there's I mean it's you know life has its. I mean, everything has its pluses. You How know, long minuses. were you working there? Um, like a year and a half or two years. So, and then I was like, I can't do this anymore. I really felt like the, I was just this really bubbly, bright kid who had these big dreams and there was a lot of career waitresses who just like hammered on me all the time. And What do you mean? Uh, just they were unhappy and I was always happy. Yeah. And, it, you know, that's, I was just a kid. I didn't know you know, and I, and so I just said, I don't know if I can do this. I got to get out of LA. Something's got to change. And I actually find it really interesting that whenever I do something dramatically, dramatically sort of like shifting in my life, change happens in, in ways you don't expect. So I left LA for three or four months and I moved to England and I put my, I parked my car and I went away to Europe for three or four months because nothing was happening. I couldn't get a deal. I hated my job. I really wasn't finishing school. And then um, when I was in Europe, I got a call that Maverick Records wanted to meet me. They got, they they got my acoustic it? demos. They nice. got a hold of an acoustic demo. Who was it who heard you? Um, Scott Austin and Guy O'Siri. Crazy. Mm-hmm. And so I, you're in London at this time for a couple months? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then you go and you So you then I said, back. oh, shit, maybe I, should go back to, maybe I should go back to L.A. and see this out. I mean, no one else is, you know... No one else has really said, "Come here, let's meet, let's do this." And that there's always that have been a lot of like false hopes, you know, because that happens yeah. all the time for the whole. Your I mean, whole, it still happens all the time for all of us. Yeah, yeah. So I went back, and then interesting. As soon as they were interested, other people were interested. Why do you call it false hope and not just hope? Well, I kind of look at it like it's not really false hope. I would say that I liken the music industry in my career as like uh, a maze in a city where you know there's a way to get out of it, but every corner you turn you think is the corner for a long time. You're like, oh, this is the corner. I'm turning the corner. I'm going to be it. This is going to happen. Here we go. And you turn the corner. It's like, it's not the corner, but you're closer. Then you keep going, you keep going, you cope going, and there's this huge corner you're about to turn. And like, I can't see where I'm going, but I think this is the corner, and it's not quite the corner. But every turn leads you where you're supposed to go. Um, Is that particular to the music industry or is that life? I only know the music industry, so mm-hmm. I can't say, but I would say it's life. But I think in particular being self-employed in the record industry right. and always having these, having really big dreams requires a lot of long, long game and a lot of patience and a lot of determination to see something through when it's hard. When did you, I mean, did you learn that? So you come here sort of thinking, okay, here's, maybe this is that corner that I need yeah. to turn. You know, are you thinking, you're not at that point thinking long game, partly because you just need some money to pay bills too yeah. at that age. Yeah, right? and I, but I also thought this is it. This is what I wanted to do. I wanted to make an album. I wanted to tour. I wanted to, you know, have this career I'd envisioned when I left home. And it was a corner in my, in my twists and turns of life, but it wasn't like the corner because, right. you know, obviously life happens. The label folded into Warner Brothers after I signed. I toured. Um, I met amazing you people. Tour I toured with like Lifehouse and Dave Matthews and. How long were you on tour for? Like two years. 
Wow, that's way longer than I thought you were going to say. Yeah. I mean, I had record deals and toured for like three weeks at a time and three weeks here. Well, I would but do, I never I would did say like, like two months here, home for two months, back out for two months, home for two months, back out for four months. Did you have, who were you touring with? Like, did you have a band? I had a band, yeah. Yeah. And then I, sometimes I did like acoustic shows, I did promo shows, I did. Were you able to have any personal life? Yeah, I would come home and, um, and, kind of resume life for two, three months and then do it again. Right. I always try to liken it to, you know, you th- it's what I needed at the time. Yeah. And it got me to where I am now, but it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Why? What did you think it was going to be? I don't know. I think in your mind you have this vision of like, I mean, when you set, set out to get a deal and make an album and it didn't happen exactly as you planned, you know, when you get dropped, you're like, oh, Okay, well, that wasn't what I did you, Wait, did you get dropped when oh, they yeah. merged? No, or? they kept me for a while. And then they put the album out and I continued to tour. And then after like three, four years, they just finally dropped me. And then I went back to cupcake decorating because I needed to just stay busy. I was so sad. So yeah. I went back to cake decorating for a while. And at the time, my my ex-boyfriend, but my boyfriend at the time, was a set designer in the re- in the movie business. So he hired me to help decorate. Um, shows with him for a while to make money. So I decorated crazy. I got, so I was decorating cupcakes. I was really like struggling to figure out what my next step was. I signed another deal to Universal. I got another record deal, but I was helping my ex-boyfriend decorate movie and TV sets. So while I was making my second album, I would go in in the morning and work on the, I did the first season of Glee. I decorate. I helped decorate Glee while I was making my album. No way. Yeah. Did you meet a lot of musicians and stuff through the process, or no? Because you're no, not in that side. I of the wasn't world. in that side of the world. So did that just tease you more? Um, a little bit. It was like, okay, let's make this amazing album. So I would go in at night and make my album while I was doing decorating Glee during the day and and design helping set design. That's crazy. Crazy. Then you cut to years later, like. Yeah. Um, like, you know, we all work on projects. Like, I met Leah Michelle recently, and she cut this song that I'd had. And you're like, oh, I, you probably saw me walking the hall. I didn't say anything to sure. her. It's like, you probably, she probably didn't even know she saw me walking the halls of Glee. The jobs you have in between deals are so strange. Yeah. I, I, I know this is your story, but um, I got dropped. It wasn't really dropped. I had this, I had a record company thing that EMI bought. And I ran a record company. And when I ran out of money, I just got depressed. I had just come off tour and it was like, I ran my band into the ground. Uh, we have no money. We're done. Yeah. And my sister was a talent agent. <laughs> and she goes, yeah. you should go on commercial auditions. And I was like, nah, I mean, that's not really for me. She's like, just try it. The first one I book, we, I fly to, I, I get it. And I fly to Sydney, Australia to be the face of Subway. No, really? Yeah, and I shoot this like I shoot this thing, and the people in Sydney think that I'm famous because this like L- this like Los Angeles actor comes out, and they have like all these extras, and you get picked up by limos and all this shit. And I went and I totally like had I did all these commercials, and it was like the whole thing was about like the fresh word, like, <laughs> the, you know, was, was the thing. And it was like this joke about it. Uh-huh. 
And people thought that I was doing that for a living. And it was so refreshing because I had been pursuing music for so long. And no one cared. And <laughs> no like, one cared. And yeah. you're like, no, no, no. I mean, I'm in a band. I release some yeah. music. They're like, oh, you're an actor. I'm like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, fortunately, there there's no evidence of this. I yeah. mean, I want to see a picture. I'm I have Google. evidence of it, but I don't think it's on the internet. Yeah. So, uh, I'm pretty happy that I didn't end up being Jared Fogel. <laughs> in he, case he's listening in prison. <laughs> like, sorry, I'm kind of happy about that too, Ross. Yeah, right? <laughs> but it's just weird. You never know. You have to know. just keep walking through doors because it's, it's that, ma- that maze thing. It might thing. be the corner. It might be the corner. Every corner I turned I thought was the corner, and it wasn't, but it got me closer to my goals and my journeys. Yeah. And I still am turning corners. Sure. But there's definitely there's definitely been like breakthroughs in the last few years that, that are are you know keep that like, keep you going okay all that 10 15 years of like corner corner Struggle. turning wasn't for nothing yeah. yeah okay here's the deal i am technologically challenged i've always been technologically challenged i barely know how to use this computer to record this thing that i'm recording right now so I can guarantee you that I cannot build a website. And when I was in a band, I just needed something to help me build my band's website. Well, you are in luck because today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website for your music in minutes. Choose from over 100 mobile-friendly themes. Then customize your design and content in a few clicks with Banzoogle's easy visual editor. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including tools to sell your music and merch commission-free right on your website, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, integrations to pull in content from all your online services like Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Banzoogle plans start at just $8.29 a month and include your own free custom domain name. Go to banzoogle.com to try it for free for 30 days. And be sure to use the promo code ATWI. That's ATWI to get 15% off the first year of your subscription. Banzoogle, websites built for musicians by musicians. So you get the deal at Universal, yeah. and there's the new Hope thing. Yeah, and there's another new Hope, so you make another album. And all this time— Did you, you know, co-write this stuff, or are you writing this alone? Are you Who's producing album, it? I, I, my first album I did mostly on my own. I wrote sure. almost everything. And then the second album I decided to do more co-writing. So I worked with just a bunch of people that were kind of just talented songwriters and people that taught me things. Uh, Shelly Pikin taught me a lot. Yeah, Shelly was my first co-writer on my first album. We did a couple songs together. And then the rest of the album I I wrote alone, for the most part. Her and Jude Cole. And Jimmy Harry, actually, too. And then on the second album, um, Marty James was a really good friend. No way. I've known Marty since we were 18. Congratulations to Marty on his, on Despacito. Yeah. So we did the first, we did my second album. He produced most of it. We've been friends since we first moved here to LA together. Like way before we've been friends How did you for guys years. Meet? He was signed to Grand Royal Records on the Beastie Boys label, and I was trying to get a deal on Maverick, and I needed demos. And some guy hooked me up with Marty to produce my first demos, but those demos didn't get me signed to Maverick. 
Wow. The acoustic demos got me signed. So then on the second album, I went back to Marty. And then we did a bunch of stuff together. Did you ever re-record songs? You know, where when you said, like, these demos didn't make it, but these demos. Yeah. Were you recording songs and it was like, that was the demo. And then the next time you recorded songs, you were like, well, no, those are already done. Or did you re-record songs multiple times in multi- no. with multiple producers? Usually it was just It was like, always a brand new song, right? Sometimes. It, although if the late—it feels like back then if the label thought you had a single, they would try it with, like, four different people. They yeah. would do four different producers to try to— take a stab at a song where now it seems like it's a one-stop shop of you go in, you write it with that producer. He, that's what he it produces is. it. That's the song. And if it doesn't work, you're not going to take it to another producer with this other guy's publishing on it. Where back then producers would just do it. What was the difference in the universal deal from the Maverick Warner Warner deal? Um, the Maverick Warner deal was like my very first sort of it. You know, the, not like the actual deal, like those not were, like the parameters. Those were your but babies. Like, but like those were my babies. Those, those songs, songs were like yeah, because because you spend fourteen years you to spend write your, your first life. album. It's right. like your debut of your. It's your journal in Carnet. It's like your. It's, yeah. it's everything. It's you. And with the Universal one, it was uh, once you've had your heart. It's like love. Once you've had your heart broken that badly you don't love the same way again yeah so i would say getting dropped the first time is like having your heart broken the first time uh-huh. once you've really loved in that st- stupid unabashed sort of careless way you look at love differently you look at album it's like that so i think the second album i just looked at it differently you still love the songs you still want to make them perfect you still want it to be beautiful but you're realistic about the relationship <laughs> wow, were you? Get, but you were starting to get licensed at this point. This is like the beginning of like, and that's when the licensing started. Yeah, is that because of Universal? Because well, you signed they, a, your publishing to EMI, though, yeah, right? right around that time. I never signed a pub deal on the first on the first one. Okay, so on the second deal, Katie Vinton, who was Katie Donovan at the time, reached out to me on social media randomly. I think it was MySpace, and Sick. was like, I saw you perform to nights with Lifehouse at Irving Plaza in New York City. I went to the first show, because she was in college at NYU. She's like, I went to the first show, and I came back the second night just to see you. Do you have a publishing deal? I'm the assistant to all the creative at EMI. And I said, no, I don't. She's like, well, why don't you come meet me? So I went and met her, but she was sort of, you know, trying to... She was still at a time in her career when she was trying to get doors opened. She was still trying to get calls back. So she was like, hey guys, I got this girl. And everyone's sort of like, yeah, okay. Yeah, cool. And she marched into John's office, John Platt's office and was like, sign her. Can I sign her? And he was like, I'll let you sign her with me. And that was her first co-signing. That's so sick. And then Big John, John Platt um, made her his assistant after that. Because of her tenacity and her vision, and then um, and now and now she then she became his A and R, right? And then they left EMI, it folded into Sony. I stayed on Sony, and they're Warner Chapel now. Yeah, and then they and Katie, changed my life. Yeah, they changed your life. <laughs> they, they changed and a and lot of people's lives. Life. Yeah, they yeah, changed yeah, a lot of sure. people's lives. For so sure. yeah, that was my my um, So yeah. they bring you on, and you start getting licenses all over the place. That's got to be affecting your touring too. I mean, are you then going back on tour because people know who you are, or is no? It- it's funny. At that point, I was so sick of the label feeling sort of. Um, we all feel jerked around by labels at some point, but when you don't feel like you're a priority and they're not seizing opportunities at the time, I had had a song on the album. I had had a song that wasn't on the going to be on the album, but we decided to repackage and put it on because we got this commercial. Last minute for the Verizon Droid when they dropped 
this huge new phone and it had like million, a couple million views in the first like day Wow! on YouTube. And they were like, oh, let's put this on and make it. And, but they, they didn't want to make it a single. They didn't want to work it. And you're like, guys, no one ever gets these types of commercials. Yeah. We got to make this a single. And I actually just went in and asked them to let me go. I didn't wait for them to drop me. I just said, you know what, guys, this isn't working. We don't have the same vision. You let, let, let just let me go. Also, because what did they say? They said okay, and they gave him. Uh, yeah, they they let me go. They give you your masters back. Yeah, they give me the masters back. Why do your songs translate so well to television and film? Well, I think in the beginning, my songs, the really emotional, ballady, heartbreaking. On the first album, One Tree Hill used a lot of my songs. I did a Weezer cover that was on the One Tree Hill. And the producer of that show is still a really good friend of mine. Um, so these really emotional, ballad, ballady, heartbreak songs really worked in the teen drama world. On the second album, um, I wrote one sort of happier, upbeat thing that worked on a commercial. And I realized what was working. And so I actually tailored my songwriting to commercials. So I actually mindfully wrote lyrics that I knew could work and that I would just specifically put out an EP of songs for licensing. So I didn't I didn't make it like my this album is my absolute vision of my heart and soul. This was just I know I can I know I can do this. This is a commercial decision. So and we had hundreds of things. And EMI was all about it so they were the yeah and they, they were team, going out and kind of pushing yeah and at the time katie was really working with the film and tv department in la and then and the commercials and sync department in new york city and they just that team of people just went for it. we had we had i mean and, and at the time because my label wasn't pushing for to do any promotion on this thing and i asked them to let me go i started owning my own masters at that point so i was owning the master on everything i was amazing licensing so i split it with my producer we split 50 50 the master and the pub so so while my publisher was recouping my publishing side on my advance i was getting cash up front on the master 50 percent of every commercial sync and if there was sag on it because i sang i got sag money so there was a time when we were having a commercial a month I mean, you're making more money than 95% of major label artists at that point. Yeah. Because they're getting that $100,000 advance. And then sitting. Minus, minus like lawyer, manager, maybe business manager fee. Plus then after that, they're splitting with their bandmates. So you got four writers left. So you're at like, maybe you're at, you know, around $22,000 a person minus taxes. So you end up with like $18,000 a person. You're getting like that upfront per sink. Yeah. You know, that's crazy. Yeah, or more. So why did you like, I mean, I just saw it and I was like, okay, that's good. Let me keep doing that. And at the time I said, okay, I don't want, I, I, I consciously decided not to tour anymore. I said, I'm going to come off the road. I'm just going to do sinks for a year or two and make some money and then kind of have the, the, the financial stability to then make a bigger decision about what I want to do if I want to still do art, my artist thing, if I want to just write for other people. So I took that time to like just make as much as I could in that world um, and because truthfully, those ad, those ad agencies were really good to me. They were really loyal to me and I, we were working like very, in a very like, yeah, they would come to you and say, Hey, we need this kind of song this? or and something. And I would. Yeah. And, um, at, am I, you know, so we were kind of having this relationship that was working. Um, and then I think it started, then people caught on that there's no money. There was no money anywhere. There was no money in sales. There's no money in album sales. 
there was no money in streaming at the time. So no one was making money. And so then every artist that wasn't having a hit was like, I need to do syncs. Yeah. So then it became oversaturated where people were saying, oh, we got this brief. We want something that sounds like Mozilla, but we only have a $1,000 budget all in. So people were imitating me. And some, some, there's always somebody there willing to do it for Exactly. That. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, and don't get me wrong, there's still great opportunities and there's, it's still there, but the hustle is much more, um, there's more, I think there's, it's a, the game is evolving slightly. So. Well, it taught you, it, it must have taught you how to write with so many different kinds of artists because they give you their own brief. Yeah. And you're like, oh yeah, I've done this a million times because I've written, you know, I wrote this kind of song for, for this that. commercial even. Yeah. Or this and the movie commercials this. were lyric briefs and sonic briefs right. um, with my artistic bent, bent on of it. Of course. And then, yeah. So, but now working with artists is even, it's interesting. You just Were have to you be releasing flexible. songs while you're, like when you'd have a song licensed yeah. in something, would you then put it yeah. on iTunes? Mm-hmm. I put it on iTunes. Crazy. Yeah. Or I release an EP of those songs that were in commercials that year. So, this is, where is the point? Because right there, you know, you start, your third credit on Wikipedia is Wrecking Ball. So, <laughs> between like, yo, I'm going to, I don't really want to tour. I think I'm done on the, the artist side to like, yo, I'm going to try this thing. How did that transition happen? And were you comfortable saying, I'm done being the in the spotlight? Yeah. Or is that also a transition? I think it's actually interesting. I think most artists who become top liners have to grapple with that decision that they don't want to be in the spotlight anymore and that they're okay being the supporting role and they're okay helping this artist create a vision side by side and then letting them be the one to sing it to the world. Um, I think that um, when I started, after the commercials and stuff, I had a sort of a, the commercials were doing really well and I was earning doing that, but it wasn't giving me that feeling. It wasn't the kind of songs that I wanted to be writing all the time. I said, it's, it's okay to make money and you need to make money to keep doing what you do, but you also have to fulfill that feeling inside of you as an artist that's, you know, that you feel like you're creating something where you can have a human connection and where you can let your humanness meet other people's humanness, yeah. you know, v- via sound and music and melody. So I wasn't, I wasn't expressing my humanness on the level I wanted to express it. And I liked the songs I did for commercials, but it wasn't that really deep part of me. So I didn't... So I I got into a relationship with someone, and I moved to the East Coast for a year. And it went in New south. York? Uh, we were, I was living in Philly, and I was taking the train in three days a week to New York to write. And I just sort of decided, like, I'm not... The artist thing isn't working like I wanted. Maybe I, maybe, maybe I shouldn't even be doing music at all. Maybe I should just take a break and just try to write for other people and not stress about it anymore. So I sort of was moving in a direction of maybe I'm maybe maybe this isn't happening for a reason. And I got into a relationship with someone and was supposed to get married and um it was a very quick exciting brief flame of a relationship that was very painful and um it ended like horribly, like really horribly and about 7 weeks before What does that mean? Uh the person that I was with was not what I thought they were. And everything was... Um, another false hope. Another situation. false hope. And tumultuous and really um, just 
really traumatic. And I call, so I had to call the wedding off six weeks before the wedding. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So I had a hall and a dress and a wedding. You know, the wedding catering and the band and the music, everything was booked. And um, we were actually building a house. So I had to walk away from the house and the wedding. And I basically my life was just steamrolled. And I had to do it. it. It was one of those things where I didn't want to do it, but I had to do it. Um, and you're in a foreign city for And you, I'm alone you know, in another city, and, yeah. and I was horribly ruined by this. And I didn't even know where to begin to start over. And I was literally in ashes on the ground, <laughs> like literally broken, like ready to be a phoenix. Everyone's telling me I will be, but there's no... How do you how do you get from A to B? I remember my best friend at the time on the phone with me, like a few weeks before my wedding was supposed to be, and she was like, um, "Mo, you're gonna be a hit songwriter. I just see it for you. I just see it. Just don't quit. If you want to do this, just go for it. You have it." And I remember thinking, "Wow, she must really love me to lie to me, huh. because there's no way." How do I get from A to B? How do you get in those rooms with those hit writers? How do you get in those places? There's no way. I don't know how to start. I don't know how to start over again. I don't even know where to begin. And I just remember being on my mom's sofa in Detroit <clears throat> and um, thinking, okay, I have to start over. So I moved back to LA. <clears throat> I was taking trips back and forth and I was staying at my aunt's house out here. And I just went to my publisher and I said, I need to start doing sessions again. And... They were like, okay, well, we'll put you in some rooms and see. You know, you kind of disappeared for a year. So were they mad, were they mad <clears throat> that you left? No, because it was a whole new staff because EMI had folded into Sony. So I'm basically trying to get oh, new people I didn't know. So when they fold, when they folded in, I left. You, you were like, oh, I'd you were like, gone. I'm going to literally leave. I left to, to the East Coast for a year. You come back and when, you have to reintroduce yourself to new I reintroduce myself to people that don't know me people. and uh-huh. hopefully get them to care about me. And I give Jim Vallotato a lot of credit because he was like, well, let me see what I can do. And he, last minute, so the week I was supposed to get married, I was like l- like crying pretty much every other hour and trying to go do these sessions with people I didn't know, trying to get my life back together. Just like, go do it. Just go. Just do it. I had to just do something. And I really firmly believe that when you're in a, you're in a place of devastation and heartbreak, opportunities are there. It's about doing. It's about putting one foot in front of the other, going to a meeting you don't want to take, taking a phone call you don't, having courage when it's really hard to have courage to put your face out there to the world when you you don't even like yourself. <laughs> How are you going to like anybody else you go meet? 
It's really hard. And um, he said, well, I got this session. The top liner canceled. There's some pretty big songwriters. You think you can do it? And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I'm in LA. I drive to this session. The, the, the studio's not right. It's not... They couldn't get us a studio, so they put us in this Japanese learning center on Pico Boulevard with a piano and like a ballet room in the no back. Way. Yeah, a Japanese children's learning center. I walk in, I'm like, what is this? And I'm barely holding back tears. And I walk in, and it's Sasha Scarback. Wow. And he was like, hey, I'm like, hi. And he sits down and he starts playing something, and I just start crying. And then Stefan Macchio showed up like maybe uh, 45 minutes later, an hour late, and then we start talking. And then by the end of the day, I'm just sobbing and telling them my whole story. I'm supposed to get married this week. And then we wrote Wrecking Ball. Whoa. Yeah. Did you know at that time that the song was special? Or at this point where you're like, ah, man, I'm, I don't care. I'm, I feel like shit anyway. So then you're just yeah. like, you're like, it doesn't matter. Or did you feel, was there this, was there, when did that moment happen where you kind of had the epiphany that, this was all going to go into an, a much better direction. Well, I that knew, song then yeah. changes everything. Yeah, it changed everything. Very quickly too, right? Within a year. Yeah. Um, I knew that I had written one of the most true things I'd ever written. I knew I'd written something so real to my pain that it was an, un- an undeniably real song. And I knew it... I knew it was catchy, <laughs> but <clears throat> it's not a hit till it's a hit. We all know that. Sure. D- did that make you then change your process for the rest of the songs? Because once you emote like that, it no. kind of open. It must have opened some mental doors too of being, oh yeah, that's interesting. If I'm really honest, maybe there's a. Great but what's song funny in there. is when you want to be really honest, you don't always you don't always get to be. Weirdly, when you're cognizant of honesty, you're not as honest. <laughs> Wow, yeah. When you're like, I need to try to be really honest. And you're like, I'm blocked. But when it's just fluidly, painfully raw, there's no filter. There's no like, let's turn this knob and have the honest moment. Right. Funny, when you try to be honest, the songs don't sound as sincere. How does it, how does it get from, <laughs> from you three to, you know, mm-hmm. being recorded? Because you, you wasn't really recording there while you're writing it. No, we so didn't even have a we didn't that. even have a place to record it. We had to go the next day and record the demo the next day at Harmony Studios. Nice. And we were in there recording the demo. Um funny, and this is just how the universe works and life. I would have never met Miley if I hadn't been in Philly. Why? She was there while Liam was shooting a movie. And she heard another song I wrote from a producer in New York and wanted to cut it. So I cut her vocal on a song I, I wrote in Philly and we exchanged numbers. And then when all this stuff was going down in Philly, I thought, that's it. I'll probably never work with her again. This this thing happened and I'll never see it. It's just like it was a one-time thing and that's it. And then... Um, and at the time, no one knew if she was going to blow up or No, she like wasn't that, the so Miley she is now. Right, right. She was party in the USA... Yeah. Post Hannah Montana, can't be tamed, the climb. Right. So she was reinventing herself. She was working with all these different people. So no one knew what. No. Interestingly, this is another funny thing about songwriting. Because she wasn't what she is right now, maybe a lot of people wouldn't have given her their hits. Oh, wow. If you think about that, because people are really picky. If they write the best song they've ever written, they want to give it to the biggest star right now. 
and they don't give it to the star that might be a star in uh, six we- in six weeks or six months. They don't take a chance on a lesser on a lesser or, or on a budding artist with a hit because they want the sure thing with the big artist, which is really hard to get. So interestingly, maybe a bigger writer wouldn't have given their hit to a budding artist or a reinventing artist. But because I'd never had a hit before, and I didn't even know it was a hit, I just knew it was a good song that felt real to me, that it was like, let's give this to her because she's a great singer and this makes sense. You see that a lot with with writers like, even where, you know, Julie and Justin... Julia Michaels and Justin Tranner, when they're doing something like Haley Steinfeld, who no one knows who that is yet, you know, they weren't at the time, they weren't yet in the room with, they couldn't get in the room with Bieber for a whole album. Exactly. But they could do that with Haley Steinfeld. Or, you know, you have Scott Harris, who was able to do that with Chainsmokers and with Shawn Mendes. And part of it is because I'm sure at the time, it must have been he wasn't necessarily going in with Beyonce. Meanwhile, he then ends up in a weird sort of way being one of the few people who shaped two of the biggest artists of the last 10 years. So it's like having, sometimes it's a blessing to not be in the room with the best artists. I definitely turned down an opportunity to write with this redhead kid from from the UK when I got an email (laughs) to go in and I'm like, here's an acoustic redheaded kid I, and I could go in with CeeLo and I went in with CeeLo and I was like, nah, I got like this other session. I'm going to take that. And I, I have that email somewhere yeah. from being like, nah, I don't know. How it's do you funny. know? It's a guy, it's, it's Ed Sheeran. It's a, it, that's not even a, a famous sounding name. Like he yeah. doesn't, you know, we all doesn't have sound like Joe London. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he doesn't have Mozella. <laughs> His name's Ed Sheeran and, and he's a red-headed kid. Like I'm going to turn that down. I'm going to get in with the biggest artist I can get in with. Interesting, right? You know? It happens a lot where people turn down new artists to try to go for the biggest thing. But the thing is, everybody's trying to go for the biggest thing. You're almost better off using your talents to shape something with uh, a lot of potential, a lot of promise. Yeah, you either want that or you want to totally reinvent, reinvent somebody. somebody. And know? I was on, on the cusp of a reinvention with Miley. with her that yeah. I didn't even know. And it, it wasn't like, oh, let's give this song. No one wanted the song. I think we, you know, I don't think it was the kind of thing where like, let's turn down all these people to go give it to her. Right. It was just like, I wrote it and it was real. And at the time she was going through calling off a wedding and we were texting and it was like, this is right. So strange. And then she brought it to Luke and then... And it did okay. And it did all right. Um, so. And then, okay, so then you write with like, you know, when you, you go, you start writing with some of the biggest pop stars. Yeah, then obviously open the door because then, yeah, then, then you're a songwriter and, and, and you're in with... I've turned a really big One corner. Direction. The maze Kelly has Clarkson. opened up into one of those, like, you know, in a maze, there's like a courtyard. Yeah, I'm yeah. in a courtyard in a maze right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> you can choose. Sunlight. You can choose wherever you want to go at this point. Yeah. A little bit. I mean, yeah. we could talk about the one D thing. We could talk about Kelly Clarkson, but the reality is, you did like what nine songs on Madonna's, eleven songs on Madonna's album. Yeah. So. You know, you you start. You're in this courtyard. You're getting pulled in one direction where you can, you write with the biggest pop stars in the world with One Direction. Mm-hmm. You have one of the biggest voices in the world with Kelly Clarkson, and then you have one of the biggest icons with Madonna. Did you? Is that when you realized you had made it? Like, what is that? Is that the moment when you realize, oh, this isn't a hobby anymore? This is. Did it give you stability? It no gave one? me a lot of stability. Yeah. It gave me a lot of validation that all those years of hard work weren't for nothing. Right. And that I, you know, I didn't have a hit for 15 years. 
took 15 years from the time I left home to have a hit song. Oh, 15 years for an overnight success. For an overnight success. Over- yeah. yeah. So then you're like, okay, I'm not, I'm not doing this for, you know, for fun. What I went through was so humbling. Um, life humbles us. And, and when we rise from the ashes of our pain to have these victories, they don't even feel like your own sometimes. They feel like something bigger. Um, and so I don't even really look and go, well, I've made it now. It's more like, thank God I made it. These blessings and these gifts are amazing fruit on this tree that was pruned and pruned <laughs> and pruned. And while I am so grateful for this, I don't, I don't take it for granted and I don't take it lightly and I know that everything lined up in this perfect flaming hoop. And I was evil Knievel on a motorcycle <laughs> going over this ramp that I just happened to jump through a hoop at a time when I, if I didn't, ju- if I didn't make it, yeah. it was over. So I know those moments in my life when I jumped through the flaming hoop. And I'm very cognizant of the, of this special sort of cosmic Alignment. alignments that happen in our lives and they happen to you. I've seen it happen to a few friends. And so I just say thank you. And I just try to write great music. Yeah, but you don't just say thank you. You end up going to Washington DC fighting on songwriter behalf. <laughs> you, you're on the Grammy board because you're fighting for songwriters on, on songwriters behalf. So you're, you're, you're going to women's marches. You're not very good at just saying like, ah, thank you. You're like, <laughs> yo, I'm going to go and spend what would be the equivalent of a full-time job. Yeah. Trying to make sure that I I actively give back. Yeah, I because I believe because I believe my my gifts aren't they my blessings and gifts don't happen in a bubble, and there were a lot of people that helped me along the way and gave me encouragement, and there are a lot of women that I see struggling in the same ways, and so I want to I won't say I won't speak too much on the past relationship, but I will say that my power and my voice got lost. And as a woman, I made a very clear decision that if I had a voice and if I had power and if God got me through that, Hmm. that I would never silence that voice again and that I would be powerful and that I would stand up for weaker women and I would stand up for people that didn't have a voice. And so it is a thank you. It is a like, wow, this, this amazing thing happened, you know, through the course of a lot of obstacles, but... How do I use that obstacle to show other people that their dreams are possible and that their their desires are worthy and that their goals are attainable and especially women because, you know, while we've come so far in the history of humankind, women are still not equal in the world. And I'm one of very, very, very few women in the entire history of the human race literally, to have had a number one hit co-written at pop radio. Yeah. There are maybe 20 of us, 30 no of way, us. Really? I mean, think about, not, yeah, right. not artists, but co-writers. Yeah. Think about the co-writing women out Very there that few. have actually done it. This is something I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where, you know, we've had Justin Tranner on, and I know how he feels about um, homophobia in the music business. He also speaks on behalf of, you know, women for misogyny, and mm-hmm. so do you. My my question is: Is it more prevalent in the music business, or is it is it 
an equal amount compared to the rest of the world? Is it less so in the music business and still just such a massive problem that it's it's still in the music business and we should be moving on from it? I mean, from from your perspective, is the music industry uh, misogynist? Like, do you come across do you come across that kind of barrier? Is there a reason why you are one of twenty people that have? <laughs> There may be more than 20, but well, I really don't think say, there's that. Let's, let's say, say it's 40. Let's, let's say, say it's 40. 200. Yeah. Let's say it's 2,000. It's n- such a tiny number. Uh, yeah, exactly. It, I mean, it's clearly not that. No, it's so, not. It's maybe 50. Well, I'd when say you the have last 50, 30 or 40 years of women who have actually had a number one hit that they wrote but didn't sing. So let's say... I couldn't even tell you how many, but it's not a lot. Let's say that it's, it's, it doesn't even, doesn't matter. even matter. The number is infinitesimal cosmically speaking. Yes. So it doesn't... It's tiny no matter what, and especially compared to men. I'll say this. When you get the call from the head of a label or an A&R or a manager to set up a camp to procure and create an opportunity for an artist to sort of shape an album, how many times is a woman in control of that? Of the camp? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, very few. Do you think that if there was a woman that would... Or that if, if you decided personally even, you know, I'd like to run a camp for whatever the young artist is, be like, I'm really into this artist, that you could go to the label and say, let me run the camp. Possibly. I, I think that they would be open to it. But I think when you look at the really big circles of bigger artists that need to have, like, you know, there's there's camps for already established hit artists Majority of those are men. And, I, and I, I think a woman could go in and say to the label, I would like to do a camp. But sometimes I wonder if we would be taken with the same level of trust to ensure hits. Wow. Yeah. I do wonder. I do wonder if a woman went to them and said, to an A&R and said, hey, so-and-so at this label, I'd like to run a camp for so-and-so. They'd be like, cool, yeah. Um, we already got that guy doing it. and." Right. It's interesting because I, I I always say that the the best pop writers are these girl artists. Megan Trainer, mm-hmm. Katy Perry's really good. Adele's really good. Taylor Swift's really good. You look at the guys on the other side that are their contemporaries, and a lot of them don't write. No, and a lot of them take outside songs. Yeah, you know, Bieber and uh, and Chris Brown and you know Maroon Five even like. Even though Maroon Five can prove that they cannot write hit yeah. songs, but they do take outside songs. You know, but they do take outside songs. And, Kelly and, takes outside songs. Yeah, that's true. She, but she also yeah, but scrap. there's a difference there because Kelly will take in outside songs, make tweaks to it, and not ask for her She's name one of the to very be attached. Few that to it. doesn't take publishing. Yeah, but or I think the attached. the idea of um, maybe the best the best artist writers are female too. I and agree. That, that maybe that's an, why they're so amazing is because they write their own stuff. Yeah. You know, maybe, although, you know, for a long time, Katie and Bonnie were, you know, that was, that was a female powerhouse team. Katie and, and now Katie's Sarah, doing Hudson. Sarah Hudson on and, and for us is, is gay and open and, you yeah. know, he's, I, I'm not saying that that's the same, no. but in the conversations we've had, you know, previously, it seems like those are similar issues. Yeah. So that's I think, why I You know what I think is interesting? I think it's just, I don't think it's that women aren't getting opportunities as much or that there aren't, they're not, they're, they're definitely represented in the business. We definitely yeah. have visually, there's a lot of women out there. The question is only in the last few years have women really been, have stepped into the role of behind the scenes creating of this package. 
for the most part, in the last, I'd say, in the 70s and 80s, there was Diane Warren and Carol King and, you know, then Shelley Pike and Lauren Christie kind of came up with a few others. But really, when you look at the pop world of women in there with the male producers and in there with the male engineers and in there with the predominantly male musicians, it's only been a few of them in the 70s and 80s when the women's revolution really started. The women's movement really started. So then you've got the 90s and 2000s, a little more. You've got Sia doing stuff. You've got Esther Dean doing stuff. You've got a few other women doing stuff. And now, only now in these last 10 years have female songwriters really emerged to have some status and some recognition. But interestingly, there's no network of nepotism for us. There's no, there's no network yeah. for us of like, how do I... Like I think men. You think are, of the super producers, and none of them are are women. So yeah. and those are the people who tend to drive a lot of. They these, drive the. They drive albums. the ship. They steer the ship. So interestingly, I think men have had generations and millennia, like a lot of nepotism for a long time. They know how it works. Yeah. They're really good at it. They're really good at um, mentoring younger men and bringing them up. Yeah, there's this the part of the the root of the misogyny is that men tend to try to look for someone under someone that a men a mentee that they see themselves they in. see themselves in and i don't so they, know that men necessarily yeah. see themselves in a young woman and so how do i do i choose do i choose to mentor this young girl to become great it's it is i think nepotism is is sort of it'd be interesting if if there was a major female producer that would change you know you see what um I'm blanking on her name. Who did uh, the... Linda Perry? Yeah, Linda Perry. Mm -hmm. You know, what she does for women, what she's done for women, Mm -hmm. how significant that is, you know? And what Diane Warren has done for, you know, I know she tends to write alone. Still, (laughs) she changed the game But she changed the game. Absolutely. You know, she's writing hit songs for when you're writing, you know, the biggest... She's writing 100%ers. The only number one Aerosmith song was 100% written by a woman. Yeah. And I, so there is something about... She's been a bit of an anomaly for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. But also the interesting thing about her is she, her tenacity is, is like to the next level. She's very serious about not co-writing. She's, she, that she writes everything. This is the song. And it's like her drive to get her songs out there was like unparalleled and she had to be that way because she was the only woman doing it. Right. So I think it's just, you know, I think it's just a matter of time. I think we're, we're behind slightly. And so we're, we're starting to get more recognition and more visibility. And as things go on, I think it's just a conversation that's continued to, that we need to continue to have about, about giving women opportunities when it's not an instinctual thing for men to do. Sure. I love the the thing about Kelly Clarkson having so many women. It's almost because of your connection to someone like Miley or to Madonna. I mean, having done so much of that album, yeah. it it would help if one of those kinds of artists also said, "I want this woman to be the executive producer," because it does drive the ship often when it's the artist as well. Yeah, you know, or if if there was an artist, even if it's, you know, I don't know a. Imagine Dragons having, you know, a, 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 I don't yeah, know why I named that, but like a female executive producer, yeah. you have something like that. That would be, that's the moment that would really probably change. Well, is it about trust? Game. Is it about trusting women to be competent to give you hits? I don't know. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting too is like, you know, 
Madonna working with her and doing all those songs with her. We did 11 songs together. I mean, she clearly doesn't VP'd have any problem. Kind of did. Unaf- yeah. yeah, I mean, just not really. But like I was in the room with her doing all this stuff together and definitely trying to help her execute a vision. She's, she's certainly not one of those women that's uncomfortable with other women at all. In fact, she's really empowering. Um, she, you know, she changed my life. Talk, getting to know her. Talk about full circle. I was signed to her label when I was 20. So talk about yes, the right, full Maverick. circle right. of like coming back and creating a new, a new way to look at our relationship. Because you know when that's your dream when you're young, and then you get dropped, and it, yeah, you're like, oh, you're like burned. And so talk about full circle. Ten, twelve years later, to go back and help her make an entire album was and really healing ma- in a way. Ma- majority. It was a healing Madonna's experience for. Album. It actually healed me in a way. Yeah, it healed that. my pain from when I was young because I realized I, I do have value even at that time. It felt, I felt like I lost my value by losing my record deal. Does it help to have value when you have a giant single with with One Direction and Charlie Puth following up all that? I mean, like when when you start thinking, just when you think, ah, finally I'm consistent, then all of a sudden, like I feel like there's like another a couple more notches on your belt of just having like these um, two more really big records. I mean, one call away is like a whole other level. Then I, I I feel like One Direction Perfect's a big record, mm-hmm. but I think going to One Call Away, you know, just when you you know you go, at least for me, I always worry that my last song's my last song. You know, for sure, <laughs> I'm never gonna have another hit again. You know, <laughs> we all think that. Yeah, We're even if like, you oh. have four on the chart, it's like why isn't the fifth one reacting? Yeah, why isn't that? You one? can't look at it. You know, and then you end up with something like One Call Away, which is. I, I don't you don't know this probably, but I'm sort of obsessed with charts, and I was looking at re- radio research mm-hmm. for for Hot AC, and there are three songs that have 100% familiarity. So they there's like a familiarity thing where they call each person like, "Have you heard this song? Mm-hmm. Have you heard this song?" It's not even love love yourself is not even a hundred percent, but one call away really? is one of them. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Yeah, so like of people who listen to Hot AC, it's one hundred percent familiar to the people that they call out to. Isn't that crazy? You know, I mean, that's just one more thing. Does um, every time you add to the pile, does that? Add more stability, or is it is at this point? Is Isn't it just that a sort weird of a catch twenty two as songwriters? So that the more that you, you have to really keep yourself in check because it's a it could be a it could be a bottomless it could be a, a bucket with a hole in it. You can never get enough sand in that bucket or water in that bucket because it just pours out. If you if you're if you if your bucket's broken, no matter how many hits you have, no matter how much money you have, no matter how much success you have, you want more. If your bucket's got a hole in it. So it's really about like making sure you feel okay with yourself without any of it. Um, and while you want to have more hits, there needs to be a deeper meaning behind why you want to have success. And I really challenge, I try to challenge myself to realize that. It's, why do you, why do you need more songs at this point? Like what what is the? It's about creating value in the world. I think it's about creating a human experience in the world, and I have feelings in me that I think other people have too, and. If I can make people's lives better or if I can make people's experiences and their pain and their joy more accessible, because think about this, like how many people go through something like the personal things we've been going through in our lives lately and the struggles we've had that when they lay down at night to exhale, 
They have no way to explain the way they feel. No way. You and I could get in the shower and make up a melody for our pain and it comes out naturally and it it pours out of us and it heals us. But people don't have that. And so if we can help them, because I remember a time when I was broken and I heard a song on the radio that just dropped me to my knees. That now I look back and I'm like, that song? That's not the song I would pick to be my knee dropping to my crying song, but it was. I can't explain why, but it was. Sure. And so what if that's what you do for someone? You yeah, know? it's it, this is like totally less emotional than that, but I always <laughs> felt like when you'd see a five-year-old singing your song being like that's the first song that they will remember yeah like mine was rosanna by toto (laughs) you know like i know that that was it or or you know a a bunch of the (laughs) (laughs) well it makes sense why you thrust when you kiss if you're and then i'm then full circle yeah exactly (laughs) right um well on that note i'm gonna name five people and you're just gonna tell me what the first thing is off the top of your head okay Okay? we're gonna start it's okay if it's water let me take a sip of water right Um, and I, and because we're close, I'm just going to throw some in there that you can be like, yo. One word? All right. Well, we're not really that strict okay, on it. Okay. Okay. The Swedes. Handsome, tall, <laughs> <laughs> uh, exceptionally good at melodies. Yeah. Uh, diligent, mechanical. Disciplined. Disciplined. Is yeah. very disciplined. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Be- Becca Tischker. Real. Full of love, thoughtful, passionate. She's been your manager for a long time, huh? Yeah. Well, interesting. At the moment, she's not. Oh. But um, But maybe soon. But maybe. You never know. (laughs) Things could change. Yeah. Miley Cyrus. Powerful, fearless, wise beyond her years. Stargate. Intentional in their creativity. Um, They take chances. They are very kind, very generous. Uh, I think it's always fun when you and I are near them at the same I time. Because, like, they're, like, nor we, I've said this about them before, but, yeah. you know, like, if, if six-foot, four bald Norwegians come towards me, I tend to run because, you know, I'm a Jew. And, <laughs> and, 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 and like... I'm and, the other way. I'm like, hi! Yeah, but, like, but, but that's the thing is, like, they're so nice. They're so lovely. But they're like, you just I think, don't expect I it. think like the Swedes, they are slightly hard to read at first. Yeah. But because you and I are very open arms, loud sort of Midwestern <laughs> people, yeah. we sort of diffuse or soften any edges with Scandies. Yeah. Yeah. If you had a message for an up and coming writer, what would it be? Why do you want to do it? Why? Because if you don't love music and if you don't want to get to that place in yourself of like really knowing yourself and really putting yourself out there in times when people are going to just I mean you know how it is you, you get raked over the coals for years sometimes you have to love music you can't be you can't crawl in the mud that long without loving the actual art of songwriting and the actual little things like we, you you know how it is we get in a room and we all get like goosebumps when we get this little thing we do like oh my god that melody with that part we're like nerdy about it yeah you have to love it and you have to want to whatever your thing is for me it's more of a personal emotional thing but if you're writing pop dance songs 
you have to love those. You have to love that music. Yeah. You have to do it in a way that is so you that there's no difference between you and the song in a there's way. There's like a smell test. You there's can tell test. you can tell when somebody is not if they if they think they're just writing a song to write a song. It doesn't like, work. We call it a songwriter song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like you know when you've heard a songwriter song, you're like, wow, they dotted every i and checked crossed every yeah. t and they checked every box, but it's I just don't get a feeling. Learning how to make it dirty is like dirtying yeah, it yeah. up and making it so real and true. And it has to there's a fearlessness and a courage in being honest about yourself through your lyric. Right. That it's about getting to that place. And if you don't, if you're not doing it for the right reasons, you can't do it for that long. Um, last question is, uh, what's at the end of your maze? Like, What is then goal for you? I think I want to look back um, when wherever the maze opens and, and look back and know that I didn't leave a stone unturned. Yeah. I think one of my- You like walking into the part that's the wrong part of the maze and then walking back out. And then walking out. back out. Yeah. I think there's something intoxicating about imperfection. Yeah. Because then you get like to, f- it's like you get to fix it. The fixing, fixing is the good part. The mud, the dirtiness is actually what helps the flowers grow, right? So like, I don't know, sometimes you got to, you got to be okay with a little dirt and a little pain and a little gunk, you know? Yeah. But I think when I look back, I just don't want to have any stones unturned because I think a life with regret is my, one of my biggest fears. So... I think at the end, I want to look back and know, I, yeah, I wrote some good songs and I had some success, but was I a good person? Did I, did I try to help other people? Did I seek adventure? Did I, did I love deeply? Did I try as my best, you know? And did I, did I make other people's lives better? Did yeah. I make people laugh? Did I write a song that made people cry? Did I, did I have this amazing human, we're on a ball in the middle of the universe. Did I, <laughs> did I dance enough? Did I swirl oh, enough? Cool. Did I spin enough? We're, we're out here, like, I want to get as much as I can out of it. So I think yeah. when I look back at the opening to the maze, I just I just want to be at peace, you know? I want to have, like, a peace in my heart that, like, that, that this crazy journey I went on was worth it, and there's some beauty left. Well, I appreciate you coming on to this show. Thanks for having me. You know, it's weird. I, I prepare for a lot of these, and I, obviously... It, I prepared for yours, but I prepared less for yours than almost anybody else's because you and I do so much together. I know. And I think that not not even that we write together a lot. You know, when we're going to DC together, when we're doing we golf NMPA <laughs> things, when we're golfing together, whatever we're doing. Swedish weddings. We've Swedish weddings. We've got, you know, so much in common in our personal lives now. Yeah. And gr- our yeah. advocacy lives yeah. outside of the songwriting stuff. And you know, You'd probably five years ago. There's no way you'd pair the two of us as doing so many events together and doing so many random personal and career landmarks at the same time, and all these things. So it's it's really exciting to, you know, we. I feel like I have a, a friend in a totally different way than I have everybody else, and there's an unconditional love there. And Aww, I'm just I'm so happy that you got to do this. And uh, I'm I love your boyfriend. He's fantastic. <laughs> and, I do too. <laughs> um, and you've all you know you've been so supportive of me and my family. So absolutely, um, much love and thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist. 
or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. On next episode, we sit down with Nick Jonas. Until next time, this is Ross Bowen. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.